Hey, everybody. Welcome to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics and the law, and as we like to say, a lot of things in between. I'm Jessica Levinson, a professor at Loyola Law School, and today I'm going to give you an update on three big legal topics. We're going to talk about the January 6th committee and its work investigating what I view as a attempted self-coup of our government. I'm going to talk about the latest bad news from the Supreme Court concerning voting rights, and then talk about what I like to call the basically the no good, very bad week when it comes to abortion rights in this country. So let's kick it off with the January 6th committee. And I want to talk about one aspect of what they're looking at. We could focus on a lot of different things that the House Select Committee investigating the events of January 6th is looking into. But I want to focus on something that happened just a few days ago, which is that the House committee filed in court basically a document that said, we have to hear from John Eastman. Now, who is John Eastman? He's formerly a professor at Chapman University, a law professor, and he purports to be the president's attorney, purports to have given him legal advice when it comes to what I view as trying to thwart the peaceful transfer of power in this country in trying to basically upend the counting of electoral college votes. Now, why do I keep saying purported? Because in this case, there's a question as to whether or not there was really an attorney-client relationship between John Eastman and former President Trump. Anyway, for obvious reasons, because he apparently gave former President Trump and others this roadmap for how to, again, in my mind, thwart the peaceful transfer of power, how to undermine the counting of our votes, the January Select Committee wants to hear from him. And so they subpoenaed him, they subpoenaed documents, and they said, we'd like to hear from you. And he said, no, that's covered by the attorney-client privilege. And this is a privilege that does arise when it comes to relationships between attorneys and their clients. We want them to be able to exchange communications. We want attorneys to be able to create documents. And for those documents and for those communications to generally be privileged. But here's the catch. There are some exceptions to that privilege. One exception comes in the form of the so-called crime fraud exception. And basically, if the attorney is telling the client to commit a crime or a fraud, or if the attorney and client are in cahoots to try and commit a crime or a fraud, then we're not going to protect you under the attorney-client privilege. We're not going to throw that protection around that relationship. Now, in this case, as I said, the House Select Committee says to John Eastman, look, we'd like to hear from you. We want these documents. John Eastman says no because of the attorney-client privilege. The House Select Committee, in a filing in court, says we have, based on the evidence, a good faith reason to believe that the crime fraud exception applies here. That's a big deal in this case, again, because the House Select Committee is not just saying we think. They're saying based on the evidence, we have a good faith belief that the crime fraud exception, if there is an attorney-client privilege, that it would apply here. Now, I know that in the media world, you know, we say the words bombshell and big news a lot, particularly when it comes to investigations into former President Trump. 
But this is a big deal that the House Select Committee, again, is saying, we've looked at a lot of documents, we've talked to a lot of people, and we think this crime fraud exception applies with respect to this particular relationship between John Eastman and the former president. Now, the latest is that there is a judge who is looking at the documents in question, basically trying to determine whether or not those documents should be turned over. He hasn't issued a formal written decision, but where we are right now is that he's going to look and determine a couple of things, I think, whether or not there's an attorney-client relationship at all and whether or not there's an exception to that relationship. So that's the news on the January 6th committee. Again, a lot of other interesting developments that we want to bring to you in separate episodes, but I thought it was worth mentioning the fact that the House Select Committee is going to court, filing a document saying we have enough evidence not to prove the crime fraud exception, but a good faith belief that it applies. That in and of itself is big legal news, everybody. Now, let's turn to our second topic here. Let's talk about voting rights and the Supreme Court, and specifically in this case, the idea of drawing district lines and partisan gerrymandering. We may all remember, or it might only be me and my nerdy self, a couple of years ago, the Supreme Court says, when it comes to claims of partisan gerrymandering, when it comes to claims that state lawmakers draw district lines, and those district lines unfairly burden people's voting rights based on the idea that I, let's say, as a Republican, want to keep and gain more power. So what would this look like? This would look like I, as a Republican, want to keep and gain more power by the way I draw district lines. And so even though in hypothetical state A, for instance, maybe Republicans are 50% of the electorate, they would win 70% of the actual state legislative districts or house districts because of the way those districts are drawn. And the idea is that you draw districts basically to pack your opponents into just a few districts so they can just win those few districts and or to quote unquote crack your opponents into a bunch of districts so they can never garner a majority to pick the candidate of their choosing. Again, a couple of years ago, the Supreme Court said, look, federal judges really don't belong here. This is more of a political issue. We can't figure out the standard to use when it comes to these partisan gerrymandering claims. But they said, don't worry because state court judges still have a role to play. States can still say, look, that looks like an impermissible partisan gerrymander. Now, fast forward to this week. There's a challenge to district lines that are drawn in North Carolina and in Pennsylvania. And this week, the Supreme Court declined requests by Republican lawmakers in Pennsylvania and North Carolina to reinstate their chosen congressional maps. Now, in and of itself, this isn't necessarily huge legal news, but the lawmakers argued that their districts in North Carolina, for instance, that their districts, which were replaced by maps drawn by state court judges, should be used in the 2022 elections. In the case of North Carolina, the Republican-backed maps were tossed out as an illegal partisan gerrymander. Again, as I said a few minutes ago, 
federal courts basically threw up their hands, said, we have nothing to do here. But the Supreme Court said, don't worry, because state courts can still protect us from partisan gerrymandering. Now, in Pennsylvania, the case was slightly different. The state Republican lawmakers and the Democratic governor had deadlocked over their House district maps. And in that case, again, the Supreme Court did step in and they adopted a different plan. So the court here, the Supreme Court, by declining requests by Republican lawmakers, again, in Pennsylvania and North Carolina, to reinstate their chosen congressional maps, this is good news in the short term. It's good news for 2022 when those elections are held, but it's not necessarily good news in the long term. And that's because of what happened in the dissents and concurrence in this case. So this was an emergency appeal. The Supreme Court said no. The maps that the state court judges have drawn, those can go into effect. But at least four of the nine justices on the Supreme Court signaled that they are at least open to this really bizarre, baseless theory that's been argued by Republican lawmakers in Pennsylvania and North Carolina. It's called the Independent State Legislature Doctrine. And in separate opinions, it's Justice Brett Kavanaugh, Justice Samuel Alito, Justice Clarence Thomas, and Justice Neil Gorsuch, who all said, we think there's something to this. And this independent state legislature theory, it comes from a misreading of the Constitution's elections clause. The elections clause tells us that the times, places, and manners of holding elections for senators and representatives, meaning of holding federal elections, shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof. Now, what those supporting the theory argue that legislature in this context can only mean lawmakers, not state court judges or governors. Look, the theory has some initial appeal, but it's belied by cases dating back to 1916. It's belied by our history, our practice, our legal reality in which we have said that that word legislature, it doesn't literally mean lawmakers. It means other arms of state governments as well, again, including governors, including state Supreme Courts, and including state court judges, period. Now, the Supreme Court has signed on to this. The Supreme Court in 2015 and again in 2019 has reaffirmed the idea that legislature doesn't just mean state court lawmakers. But now, with a different court, again, it looks like there are four members of the court, four conservative members of the court, which is all you need in order for the court to decide to hear a case, that maybe there's something to this independent state legislature doctrine. Now, what it would mean is state lawmakers could draw district lines and then there would be no recourse under the state law, both the federal law and the state law for claims of partisan gerrymandering because state courts would have no role there. So again, state lawmakers, they could draw congressional district lines. They could be really aggressive partisan gerrymander. And because of what the U.S. Supreme Court said a few years ago, that federal judges don't belong there, and then because of what the Supreme Court might say soon, 
state court judges might not belong there either. This leaves us in a situation where, again, state lawmakers would have no boundaries, no limits on the district lines that they create. That ultimately is not good news for voters who could have their votes diluted because they live in an area, for instance, again, where let's say Republicans are 50 percent of the electorate, but the lines are drawn so that they're sending 70 percent of their House delegation is made up of Republicans. So that's an update on that case. We're definitely going to talk about that again because I suspect that the court will decide to hear that case next term. The real question will be, what will the chief justice and or what will Justice Amy Coney Barrett say about that? Because we already know, I think, where four justices stand. Now, I'm going to end this update by talking about what I said, I think, is the kind of no good, very bad week when it comes to reproductive rights in America. We've talked to you on the podcast before about Texas's very restrictive abortion law. And as a refresher, Texas passed this restrictive abortion law, which bans abortions after six weeks of pregnancy. It went into effect on September 1st, 2021. And the thing that makes this law so diabolical in my mind is that It's not the state that enforces the law. It's private individuals who enforce the law. So it's basically bounty hunters or vigilantes who enforce the law. That is really legally significant because part of what Texas is saying here is you can't sue the state because we're not the ones enforcing the law. You can't sue the state and federal court to stop this law, which is still under Roe, obviously unconstitutional. This issue went kind of ping-ponged up and down to the Supreme Court, finally went up to the Supreme Court again, and the court made a decision in early December where they said, okay, there's one group of individuals who work for the government that you abortion providers can sue to try and stop this law from going into effect. And that group is state medical board professionals who oversee state medical board licenses. So the Supreme Court gives this direction. The case then goes back to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, which is the intermediate appellate court in this case. And the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals at that point should have sent the case back down to the federal district court so that the abortion providers could have their trial, could proceed with their trial against these state medical board professionals. Instead, the Fifth Circuit, in what looks like a delay tactic, they certify a question to the Texas Supreme Court, and they say, hey, who can be sued? Who can these abortion providers sue under your view, Texas Supreme Court? The U.S. Supreme Court then, over the objections of abortion providers, says, yeah, it's okay to certify this question to the Texas Supreme Court. So the abortion providers had said, send this case back to district court, send this case back to the trial court. The U.S. Supreme Court basically said, yeah, it's okay for the Fifth Circuit to flout our decision and send this to the Texas Supreme Court. So what we know at the end of this week is that the Texas Supreme Court concluded that, no, the case cannot go forward against these state medical board professionals. And this essentially ends what is the biggest lawsuit against 
Texas's restrictive abortion law, at least at this point. There are other lawsuits that are pending, but this is the one that I think had the most chance of creating a statewide injunction, arguably, not clearly, but arguably, potentially, you could have a statewide injunction, which is better than just trying to halt the law piecemeal. Again, there's still a big open question as to whether or not the case against the state medical board professionals could lead to a statewide injunction. But before I say the word injunction one more time, where do I want to leave this? What I want to say is that the case is essentially, I think, dead with respect to abortion providers versus the state medical board professionals. And so while cases can proceed piecemeal, this was seen as one of the strongest cases against Texas's law. This means that what? Texas's law stays in effect. So Roe v. Wade is essentially overruled in Texas. Why would the U.S. Supreme Court allow Roe v. Wade to be overturned in Texas? I think because they're about to overturn Roe v. Wade across the entire country. There's a case called Dobbs. We've talked about it. And it concerns Mississippi's 15-week ban on abortion. They heard oral arguments in that case in December. And I think they're about ready to overturn Roe and say that there is no longer a constitutionally protected right to obtain an abortion in America. Now, a lot of us had said, okay, that means that women will basically live in two Americas after that decision. They'll live in places like Texas, where it is incredibly difficult, if not soon impossible, for women to obtain an abortion. And then they'll live in places like California, where they do have access to an abortion. And the conventional wisdom is that means that women who live in states where abortion will soon be either severely restricted or outlawed, that those women who have means will travel to neighboring states. And we've already seen that happen with respect to Texas's law. I think Planned Parenthood said they've seen an 800% increase in the number of abortion patients in neighboring states who've gone to neighboring states and their Planned Parenthood centers. Now, Missouri this week wants to do something about that. And so they're proposing a law that says you cannot aid or abet a woman in obtaining an abortion even out of state. And so this would be the state of Missouri arguably reaching into conduct in other states and telling people what is or is not permissible. I would say that violates a whole bunch of constitutional provisions. But the thing about Missouri's law that's, again, pretty smart is that it's modeled after Texas's law. And Texas's law, again, outsources enforcement. So Missouri's done the same thing. It's not the state of Missouri that's going to enforce this law. Instead, it's private individuals. And therefore, even if this law, this proposed law, excuse me, it's a proposed law, even if it goes into effect, it could be tied up in the courts for a while before it is overturned because of this weird procedural mechanism for enforcement. Again, I do not think there is a good constitutional basis for Missouri saying we're going to allow private individuals to sue other private individuals who aid or abet a woman in obtaining an abortion outside of our state boundaries. 
let's imagine, for instance, that California says, we don't want anybody in California to wear purple on Thursdays. Now, let's imagine for a minute that that's constitutional. California cannot say, and if our residents go to Arizona and wear purple on Thursdays, then that goes against state law. This state can't reach into another state. And that's what I think the problem is in Missouri. But we see with what the Texas Supreme Court decision is and what with what Missouri is trying to do, we see the future of where reproductive rights could be going in this country, which is not just outlawing abortion in a state, but also trying to prevent women from attaining an abortion in a neighboring state. And so with that, that is our update on those three big legal topics. I want to, as always, thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already and you'd like to, please subscribe, please rate, please review, please tweet me at Levinson Jessica or find me on Instagram at Levinson Jessica if you'd like us to cover anything or if you have any comments. And we wish everybody a great day. Thank you.